Welcome to Movie Oubliette, the film review podcast for movies that most people have mercifully forgotten. I'm Dan. And I'm Conrad. And in each episode, we drag a forsaken film out of the Oubliette. Discuss it and judge it to decide whether it should be set free. <laughs> or whether it should be thrown back and consigned to oblivion forever. <laughs> Hello listeners, this is episode 97 of Movie Oubliette, the intercontinental podcast with me, Conrad, picking up the debris from three consecutive storms in Cambridge, UK. And me, Dan, continuing to make tutorial videos for synths in Melbourne, Australia. In this podcast, we discuss all things fantastical film, horror, sci-fi and fantasy, because we all know the metaverse will be so successful, we may as well start stocking up on suspended virtual reality chairs and gyro machines right now. Yes. Hello, Dan. (laughs) (laughs) Hello. Hello. How, How are you, Conrad? Picking up the pieces. Well... Yeah, still picking up the pieces. It was quite a scary experience. Mm. Uh, Storm Eunice, before that we had another one beginning with D, and then after that we had another one beginning with F. Wow. Yeah, 60, 70, 80 mile an hour winds we had here across the fens, because of course Cambridge is very flat. Oh, yes. Very, very flat. Yes, right. Right, yeah. In Australia we we tend to have lots of extreme weather conditions, so... (laughs) 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 <laughs> I mean, although not not so much in Melbourne, but the rest of the country, for sure. Yeah. But it's not stopping you from doing your tutorials, thankfully. Yeah, I'm not sure who's watching them, but I'm putting them out there. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, I'm enjoying them. And so is one of our new patrons, Christopher, who got oh, in touch because yes. he was a big fan of your tutorials. Oh, yes, straight into the mailbag. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, <what? laughs> yes, yeah. Um, he asked me, my, my YouTube page, it's The Wistful Snail. If anyone out there that, that does like synth is interested, um, but anyway, <laughs> let's get to the mailbag, Conrad. <laughs> what else have people been saying? Well, we have two new patrons for this episode. Christopher, as mentioned, and also Chazilla. I'm not quite sure how to pronounce that, but yes, it's great to have you both on board. Thank you so yeah. much for supporting the show. Yes, Yes, indeed. Our longtime listener, Nick Hardy, reflected on uh, the adventures of Buckaroo Bonsai. And it's interesting, the responses to this, because it fits into two camps. There's people like Nick who said, I grew up in the 80s, watched lots of films. I like Peter Weller, John Lithgow and Jeff Goldblum. And I have never heard of this movie. Uh (laughs) Ah, right. It looks completely nuts. We'll try and watch it before listening to this episode. So... Yeah, another person for whom this was just completely in the oubliette. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was for us, both of us, so it seems very undiscovered. On the other end of the spectrum, we have Jimmy Salt, who said, I love this movie and have seen it literally hundreds of times. (laughs) I saw it as a child on cable and adore it. It's a bivouac, man. They sleep here. So many great lines. <laughs> there really were. And we had we had countless uh, nominations. Yeah. 
Wicked Person pointed out that Buckaroo Bonsai is the zeroeth incarnation of the Doctor, referring, of course, to Doctor oh, Who. Yes, oh yes. And notes that bow ties are cool. <laughs> they really are. Peter Weller pulls it off there. <laughs> well, Peter Weller could pull off anything, though, couldn't he? <laughs> Man's a legend. Even a, a cyborg suit. <laughs> yes. A uh, wicked person also pointed out the similarity between Buckaroo Bonsai and Doc Savage, the man of bronze, okay. who was in 30s and 40s pulp magazines and comics, and they did do a film adaptation in 1975. Right, okay. Shane Black is planning a new adaptation with Dwayne Johnson. Who else could it of be course. other than Dwayne Johnson? He is the it man right now. He is, yes. I don't know. It, surely this would be in a jungle. Jungles are it, right? Just, jungles are so in right now. <laughs> jungles are trending. <laughs> Dwayne in jungles. Uh, when we tweeted that W.D. Richter, the director of Buckaroo Bonsai, said, quote, the most important thing I did in Hollywood was make Buckaroo Bonsai. Mm. Uh, Jim Vanover said, that is true. Second would be penning Big Trouble in Little China. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. Very true. Uh, T. Quinn 5244 on your take on the end credits theme said, This is my ringtone. Oh. I am definitely a Hong Kong cavalier. Oh. <laughs> High praise. They're out there. They are. And Eddie Coulter said, I watched this movie so many times at the theatre and on VHS as a kid that my parents forbade me from watching it for a month because they got tired of me whistling the theme. Right, yeah. Uh, that's back in the days when you would have one VHS and just play it over and over and over again. Over again, yeah. <laughs> yep. That was me, Star Wars, every Saturday morning. It used to drive my oh, parents wow. nuts. Yeah, <laughs> which is why I know every line in Star Wars off by heart down to the inflection. But I think many kids of the 80s do. Mm. Mm. Uh, and Rhett Lowry in the US said, I love this movie when I was a kid. I see it's available on Amazon Prime. So I think it's time for a rewatch. So yes. if you're in the US, it's there if you want to catch up with it. So. Yeah, lots and lots of feedback on Buckaroo Bonsai. It's both an amazement and a mystery and a firm favourite. So fascinating. Yes, it's an odd one. <laughs> really is. So have you got an odd one for us today, Dan? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'll just go grab it. Oh, some sort of uh, corporate lab. Oh, <laughs> And there's some sort of machine I think I have to strap myself to. Hang on. Ooh, good grief. Well, I'm in virtual reality. Whoa. I'm floating. Dudical. Ah, oh, I think I've got the movie in VR space. I'll bring it into reality. <laughs> Whoa, he's the best chimp I've ever had. Okay, Conrad. Oh, feeling a little bit seasick, actually. Ooh. I was going to say you're wavering about a bit there. <laughs> <laughs> just, just give me a second. <laughs> so what do you have for us? Well, we, today is going to be, uh, I think, maybe my first uh, childhood nostalgia episode. Childhood nostalgia. We're going to be discussing The Lawnmower Man from oh. 1992. Gosh, it's its 30th anniversary this month. Yeah, Way to make me feel old, Conrad. <laughs> <laughs> if, if you're old, I am absolutely ancient. 
<laughs> well, so who's behind this this wonderful piece of nostalgia? Well, this is a horror sci-fi uh, directed by Brett Leonard, uh, written by Brett Leonard and Gimel Everett, and it's not based on anything by Stephen King. Uh, <laughs> not at all, no. <laughs> <laughs> it stars Jeff Fahey, uh, Pierce Brosnan, Jenny Wright, Mark Bringleson, Jeffrey Lewis, Jeremy Slate, and Dean Norris. Oh, wow. <laughs> Yet another Breaking Bad actor showing I up know, in one of our movies. I know, what are the chances? So, <laughs> I know. This, for some reason, this movie was always on TV when I was a child. So maybe I didn't understand the plot as a child, but I'll, I'll, I'll summarize it now. We follow mm-hmm. Dr. Larry Angelo, a brilliant neuroscientist harnessing the power of virtual reality to kickstart brain development, turning monkeys into functioning assassins. Ooh. The next step is a human subject. Simpleton Job, the humble lawnmower man, is in Angelo's sights. But as the epileptic-inducing virtual reality experiments commence, Job's intellect far surpasses even Dr. Angelo's. Job, now equipped with not only heightened mental prowess, but unexpected telekinetic and telepathic powers, he goes on a murderous rampage intent on becoming God. But will he succeed in uploading himself into 1992 dial-up modem internet and take over the world? Or will his appallingly bad CGI body be blown to smithereens? (laughs) Wow. Well, I cannot wait to find out. Mm, yeah, I can't, can't wait to visit my childhood. <laughs> <laughs> okay. After the break. Okay, we are back to talk the lawnmower man. Uh, God made him simple. Science made him a god. <laughs> Conrad. <laughs> Had you seen this movie before? I had, yes. I had the pleasure of seeing Lawnmower Man in the cinema. Wow. As a kid. And uh, gosh, 92. No, I would be a teenager. Uh Yes, I saw it in the cinema with my mates wanting Uh to see some cutting edge computer generated (laughs) imagery. How about you? So this is a uh, childhood nostalgia moment for you. Yeah. I don't know why it was always on TV or at kids' birthday parties or something. I don't know why kids would be watching this movie, but it was, I just remember it always being on reruns, but I don't really remember much of it from when I watched it as a kid because I haven't seen it since I was, I don't know, 10 years old. Oh, wow. Um, okay. <laughs> and I all I remember was the CGI moments and the guy mowing the lawn. I don't remember anything else. I mean, this movie does deal with quite a few different themes and topics. It's got virtual reality. Mm-hmm. It's got cutting edge at the time CGI. <laughs> it's got the whole God complex theme. It's got a guy that's on the spectrum which I guess was kind of popular in the 80s and 90s mm-hmm. uh, with like Leonardo DiCaprio playing um, an autistic boy and I've got Dustin Hoffman doing characters like that as well. There are some really interesting parts to this film. Yeah. 
But I'm not sure about the execution. <laughs> it's an interesting execution. Yeah, you've got a lot of things in there. You've got the Frankenstein's monster, mm. the scientist creating something that gets out of his control. You've got uh, the evil, shadowy government agency. Of course. The shop, notably. Yes, the shop. Which is from... <laughs> Very yeah. uh, reminiscent of another film that we've covered this year. Yes, Firestarter, our first episode of the year. So the shop is in there. You know, it's the same old thing. The scientist is trying to further mankind mm -hmm. and the military just wants to turn it into a weapon with disastrous results for the innocent people who are participating in the experiments. Yes. And you also have the downtrodden person who's bullied by a large number of people who, when given supernatural powers uses them to go on a revenge spree. So mm. very similar to other things covered by a really great writer who yeah. should uh, not be mentioned in conjunction with yeah. this movie. Yeah. So first of all, yeah, very similar to Carrie and Firestarter, mm. a person developing powers, bullied the entire life, and then kills everyone kills everybody yeah <laughs> at the end which is yeah it's funny though because the apparent short story that this is based on this movie has none of that no. at all like there's only one scene in this movie that bears any resemblance to the short story which is the scene with job using his telekinetic powers to use the lawnmower to kill this guy in this living room and that is the only part that's in the short story. And I think the cop scene after when they, they mentioned parts of the guy being in the bird bath, that's it. Yes. So all the virtuality stuff, all of the God complex stuff, a completely different script that they just slapped on the whole lawnmower uh, man title with, of course, Stephen King as uh, the way to hook viewers in. Yeah, the branding. And that was what he objected to. So yeah, he sued... A couple of months after the film was released in March 1992, uh -huh. not because he didn't like the movie. Apparently, he did like it in a goofy kind of way. He was just uncomfortable with the fact that his name was emblazoned across the poster and being used in all the marketing for something that bore no resemblance to the source material. Nothing. Bar a passing reference in one scene. Uh, so... Although New Line Cinema's CEO Robert Shea was quite annoyed about it, he said, quote, When he sells the right to a short story, that's what he sells. But the judge didn't feel the same way, so New Line had to pay $2.5 million in damages wow. and could only retain a based-on credit. Right, right. And when Stephen King's private investigators later found out that his name was still being used on the uh, video packaging, mm. they went back to court and they then had to pay $10,000 a day until they took it off. A day? As well as a share wow. of the profits. <laughs> he was not happy with being used as a brand in this way for something that really isn't his yeah at all. which is surprising because the end result does feel like a stephen king story they tried to include as many elements as they could yeah, yeah. i heard as well the rights to the lawnmower man were bought all the way back in 1978 oh wow but it just never got made into a movie until this movie which is not even the story at all <laughs> no it's not yeah, so one of my bugbears with this movie, it's hard to kind of accept, is Job. Mm. Job, this character of Job, I don't think the casting worked. I don't think Jeff Fahey as Job works, because already 
he looks like a Swedish male model. So having him, you know, with his hair disheveled in like overalls, I didn't buy it. It just looked like a very attractive person dressed in messy clothing. Yeah, waiting for a makeover. He looks very much like um, the Jeff Daniels character, Harry, in Dumb and Dumber from two years later with that thatch of messy straw blonde hair. Yeah, I actually uh, found similarities to Garth from Wayne's World. Right. So a lot of the really strange (laughs) facial twitches that he has, kind of like talking out the side of his mouth, very similar to Garth in Wayne's World, especially sort of the first half of this movie with him being autistic on the spectrum and pretty much being a child, Mm. which is kind of what Garth was like in Wayne's World as well. Very childlike and very innocent. Uh, So yeah, that's questionable. And then you have Pierce Brosnan pre-Bond playing the scientist guy who's so focused on his work that his wife leaves him and he hasn't got kids, Mm. that old trope. Mm -hmm. And he convinces this poor guy who mows his lawns to participate in mind-altering, completely unauthorised experiments on the basis that it will help him stand up to the people who take advantage of him. Right, yes. I thought, well, aren't you taking advantage of him, Dr. Angelo? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So I found this movie hard to connect with because there weren't that many likeable characters. No. Larry, Pierce Brosnan's character... Just an asshole, really, <laughs> taking advantage of Job for his research, but then going, oh, you can't use it as a weapon. But it's like, well, you've gone this far. I mean, it's not <laughs> it's not far from being a weapon, of being used as a weapon. And then you've got Job, who oh, some of the acting is quite cringy. It's like 80s version of autistic. It reminded me a lot of the character Ozzy, from the very renowned horror movie Leprechaun, which came out the following year, 1993, oh. played by Mark Holton, who was also a simpleton that also wears overalls. So maybe they got that character idea from this movie, but ugh, it's really bad, both characters. Yeah. And I just kind of shuddered with like, oh, this is so much cringe to watch this. And Jeff Fahey's a very talented actor. He's gone on to do some amazing movies. Yeah. But I don't know whether he worked in this movie. And yeah, no likable characters. You just hate everyone. (laughs) Yeah. Well, maybe Peter. Yeah. The little boy. That's one thing. I mean, it's a very dark view of the world because Dr. Angelo wakes up after his experimental aggressive chimp gets shot and he seems to be watching the Chemical Warfare channel on his TV. He's smoking in bed. His wife hates him. He looks out the window and sees another family where the man of the house is abusing the wife and the kid like physically Mm. and peter the cute kid at the center of it all and his mum carla Mm. who falls asleep at the oddest times they seem to be like the perfect child and the perfect potential love interest for pierce to latch onto now that he's kind of abandoned his wife or just ignored her until she went away yeah but peter's not in it very much he sort of shows up in one gaming scene and then vanishes until the finale when he's put in jeopardy so i don't get much time to latch onto him or for him to be my window into this world so i think it's supposed to be joe benangelo it is it is Shall we talk about the difference between the theatrical and the director's cut? Yeah. Because I do feel like the director's cut does address 
the Job character more. There's more insight into him. There are more scenes where he's looking at comic books and the characters that he's always gravitating to. The chimp scene at the start continues on. Mm. The chimp actually does escape and finds safety with Job. I mean, what a coincidence. <laughs> Who also happens to be Larry's lawnmower man. I mean, oh, it must be a small town. <laughs> anyway, so the, there's a standoff scene with the chimp and Job. And then Larry comes with the agents and his guns. And, and so there's more of a insight into sort of the motives of Job and his obsession with comic book characters. And he thinks the chimp is a comic book character. Yeah, I don't know why he thinks a chimp in a diaper playing laser tag looks like Cyboman. I just well, don't get it. The whole helmet, right? It's a helmet. <laughs> of course. Yeah, yeah. It's the helmet. It's the weird helmet that the chimp <laughs> wears. But I do feel like they tried, at least, to give yeah. more insight into Job. And there are a lot of scenes that they had to cut up and rearrange in their theatrical cut that don't really make sense. Like when the priest is whipping him in the theatrical cut, it's because he hasn't got rid of the flies or ants or something. He hasn't done his chores. Yeah. It just seems a bit harsh. But in the director's cut, it's after the whole chimp scene and yeah. the priest is like, doesn't want him to talk about about it or something um i don't know that makes a bit more sense there's a lot of rearrangement in the theatrical that makes it odd yeah um, with the big red the lawnmower there's more of a an introduction to job and his obsession with machines and the lawnmower whereas in the theatrical it's kind of just like oh it's big red that we've never seen before and terry's like oh you fixed it did we know about this no more <laughs> <laughs> yeah and also there's a bit more of a gradual development for job as well so that, because there are a few more scenes where you see him looking slightly tidier and slightly more assertive and reading maths books mm. Mm. rather than he has one virtual reality gaming session and an injection. And the next time you see him, his hair's all gelled down, yeah. he's wearing a cowboy outfit, and he's picking up the town bike at the petrol station. And it's just like that. It's just immediate. It's, so It's jarring. Yeah. It doesn't give the character any motive or logical character arc mm. at least in the director's cut he's obsessed with comics and so it actually does make sense that he becomes god because he's kind of obsessed with all these superheroes that are like you know higher beings yeah but in the theatrical it just like what what? Oh, okay. Suddenly he's very attractive and should be in a cologne commercial and having sex. <laughs> it's just, it, the jump is too huge. It is, yeah. It's substantially different. It's 108 minutes in the theatrical and 142 for the director's cut. That's a long movie. Yeah, you feel it. Yeah. I mean, it does make it better. It doesn't make the movie more watchable, though. No. I still think the Job character has problems. There is one scene, though, in the director's cut that I wish they'd kept in. So the girlfriend of Larry or his wife or whatever, um, she shows up later. She doesn't just disappear without anyone talking about her, <laughs> and, which is what happens in the theatrical cut. 
Yeah, she goes out with her friends and we never see her again. <laughs> yeah. Well, in the director's cut, she does reappear when Job goes into the basement to get hooked up to the VR machine. And Larry goes to find him and he stumbles in the kitchen and his girlfriend is just there as like a Stepford wife. Yeah. And she's completely in under mind control and, and being like the housewife that I guess he always wanted. And then there's another scene with the agents and she's used to like kill an agent and she gets shot down. I don't know. I wish they'd kept that in. Like that was really cool and quite surreal. Yes. And it makes more sense how upset Larry is and how determined he is to destroy Joe. But the yeah. end after his wife has been killed. Exactly. <laughs> Whereas I'm not sure what it's motivated by in the theatrical. He just seems very angry all of a sudden. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And also he He's, he's, he gets quite close to um, Carla and Peter mm. because in the director's cut, there is a scene where he has a sort of a heart to heart with Carla yeah. on the street. And so you do see a connection forming. Yeah. But in the final scene of the theatrical cut, it's like, why is he hugging them? Like, does he even know them? It just uh, <laughs> doesn't just make any sense. Random neighbor just shows up yeah. in body hugging lycra and starts hugging them yeah it's very strange yeah so act three yes jake becomes basically a vengeful tron guy yes killing people but i started to get a bit confused about why things were happening <laughs> yes. like why is larry going into virtual reality with job after he set up explosives to blow up the lab why did he go in there to join him and then get trapped when he could have just snuck out the building and yeah. that would have been it, really. I, d I don't understand. Yeah. And and also, why bring the kid and the mum yeah. as well? Why bring <laughs> them into danger yeah. <laughs> and just say, just stay in the car? Of course the kid's not going to stay in the car. But well. <laughs> why did you bring them in the first place? <laughs> yeah, especially when Carla falls asleep. Oh, yes, of why course. Why is she falling asleep? <laughs> The director on the commentary says, you know, her husband died in a freakish lawn mowing accident. Mm. So she's had a bad couple of days. So she's nodded off. Okay. Really? Yeah. <laughs> I didn't really understand the whole cyber versus reality thing. Mm. How was he able to bring things from the cyber reality to the real reality? And also, like, why didn't he need to get hooked up if he was just constantly bringing cyber things into real life? I don't just lots of little things like how did he change them molecularly uh, into those little balls? How did he do that? Yeah. Did he make them into cyber data? Is that what happened? Yeah. Like I, I wasn't sure about the rules about his powers in terms of like cyber powers. No, or what his goals are. I mean, it's something to do with world domination via, as you said in the intro, dial-up internet of 1992, <laughs> yes. which he quaintly describes as, you know, all the databases that are connected all over the world, because I guess the internet itself was quite a nascent thing. Yeah, I don't think, I don't think it was very commonplace in 1992. I think uh, in 1991 was when it first became commercially available but mm. of course not everyone scrambling over each other to get the internet because there's nothing on it back then obviously <laughs> they don't actually mention the internet no in, throughout the entire movie there's no mention of the internet there's no one with a modem and a computer he just 
uploads himself into, I guess, the system. Yes, the database. The Neuronet. Yes, he says, (laughs) by the year 2001, there won't be a person in the world who isn't hooked into the planetary network. Yeah. (laughs) Not the internet. Not the internet. (laughs) Maybe it hadn't been coined yet. Maybe that name hadn't been coined. I don't know. No, I don't think it had. There's that. There's the fact that I don't really understand how Larry knows how to set explosives. Mm-hmm. I don't know why he's taking a family into danger. Mm-hmm. I don't know why he's going into the VR world. Mm-hmm. I don't know what he's trying to achieve. I don't know what Job's trying to achieve. So, yeah. yeah. The third act confuses me. It, it was <laughs> confusing. It was a series of, I guess, action sequences that they had to somehow justify. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> and I guess all that CGI that they made, like, well, we've spent like 10,000 hours on the CGI. We have to put it somewhere. Yes. So, yeah, exactly. That's where it went. <laughs> Shall we talk about the most notable part of the film? Yes. The CGI. Cutting edge stuff, all produced because this movie had a very low budget. The director on the commentary says it's about 5 million, although on Wikipedia it says 10. Right. So they weren't using the same sort of computing firepower and techniques as Industrial Light and Magic, working on things like Terminator 2 or Mm. Pixar, who were a few years away from Toy Story Mm -hmm. around about this time they're using a small outfit that primarily worked on graphical logos for commercials i think they'd done like some mexican tire commercials or something like this yep yep so chaos systems Mm -hmm. and also another um studio called angel studios yes they ended up doing 25 minutes of actual cgi but only i think it's only eight minutes ended up in the film but yeah, apparently cutting edge for the time. Apparently. But to me, I hate to say it, I think it looks like shit. And I remember thinking that it looked like shit when I went to the theatre in 1992. <laughs> so it's not a case of, oh, doesn't this look dated? It's a case of, no, it looked like crap at the time. It mm-hmm. really did. Mm-hmm. Now, in their favour, I know that they weren't going for what CGI is used for often now, which is seamless scene extensions, Mm. removing things, creating creatures, you know, they're going for photorealism. So, you you know, Jurassic Park is going for creating a real life dinosaur, Mm. whereas they're going for something that is otherworldly and hallucinogenic and strange and Mm. beyond our comprehension. So, okay, fair enough. Yeah. But it still looks like shit. And I think part of the reason is that, I don't know, I get the sense that these guys, whoever they were, they were used to creating logos and things like this, but not necessarily graphic designers in the way that you would need to be to create images for storytelling. Yeah. So you compare this to something like Tron in 82, where it's being designed and created by animators who know how to draw something that is graphically stunning and interesting to look at. And that aesthetic has stayed with us as a landmark of the 80s. Mm. And then you get this, which just looks like that first thing where he's flying through globules of pastel primary (laughs) colours. It looks like a children's breakfast cereal commercial. It just looks ugly, Mm. really ugly and badly designed and the frame is just badly composed and the colours are hideous and I just look at it and think, I hate it. (laughs) But 
How about you, Dan? <laughs> I, I mean, it, it, it is hard. It is hard to digest. Mm. It's 1992. It's early days. Yeah. It is early days. But you, you cannot compare this to, like, I don't know, Terminator 2 or The Abyss. This is, like, small fry yeah. compared to what they managed with those movies. But again, tiny CGI companies, uh, like, they're probably just out of their depth. So, I, I mean, it's ambitious. It really is ambitious, but just obviously not up to scratch in terms of what they were able to do. And so, yeah, there are, <laughs> there are scenes that are just laughable. There's a scene where Job enters into the cyber world and it just looks like a painting, I guess, but it uh, it's ugly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it just looks like some sort of weird iMovie effect just slapped on top of real footage or something. I don't know. Yeah, every time his powers intrude into the real world and he does things like turning people into collections of marbles, one thing I notice that always happens is that the world glitches and turns into NTSC resolution, uh-huh. you know, yeah. standard def. Yeah. Just so that the effects don't look quite so shit. When I mean, they, they had to do whatever they had to do. Yeah. I mean, the worst scene has to be the bees. Oh, God. It is Not the atrocious. bees. <laughs> <laughs> and you only know they're bees because I think he looks at a soft toy bee. Yes. Like, they don't look like bees. No. They, first of all, uh, the, the swarm, it's just fuzz. It's just yellow and black fuzz. And then you have these hideous-looking bees, I guess. They're just bugs. Attack them. And it's, it's like birdemic bad. Yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> it's really bad. And you've got these agents shooting at obviously nothing and reacting over the top and... Oh, it's really laughable. Yeah, it's terrible. I think you have to give them kudos. I mean, they are at the bleeding edge. They're a small outfit. It's a very low budget. And Mm. they're producing minutes and minutes of computer-generated imagery at a time when that was just impossible. They were told it was impossible. Mm. But they pulled it off and apparently audiences responded to it in some way. Apparently it was quite a success. I don't get this. I mean, the Stephen King book I have claims that this made over $250 million worldwide, and yet Box Office Mojo says it only made $32 million in the States, mm. theatrically. Right. It debuted in second place behind Wayne's World, oddly enough Oof. that you mentioned it, okay. in March 92, <laughs> and slowly drifted down the chart until it dropped out of the top 10 four weeks later. So it seemed to do reasonably well, surprisingly well. I I mean, I think audiences would have been less harsh in terms of the CGI. Maybe. I think back in the early to mid-90s, people were just a bit more forgiving (laughs) about CGI. Yeah. Because you watch movies like Spawn, and it's atrocious, the CGI in it. It's really bad. (laughs) There's a character that's, I think, the, the devil or something. He's some sort of demon, and his mouth... It just goes up and down when he talks. There's no other features to his mouth. And it's just a, a giant <laughs> jawbone that seems to just like <laughs> go up and down. It's, it's, it's horrendous. But at the time, you know, it was cutting edge and, and wow, we've never seen this before. Yeah. yeah, it was early days. Yeah, it was early days. I guess it's commendable that they tried. I mean, it was brute force animation all the way. They had none of the rigging, none of the motion capture. Mm-hmm. I mean, apparently the scene where the priest goes up in flames is the first ever attempt at motion capture. It looks 
really bad. <laughs> it looks really, really bad. <laughs> it looks like they just cut to like a, a cut scene from Doom or something. Yeah. It's really, really yeah. bad. But the thing is, I remember thinking this looks terrible at the time. Mm. Maybe I was particularly critical as a teenager with a keen eye for film, but mm. I just thought it looked awful. Whereas I think Tron still looks beautiful. I, because it's going for an aesthetic. Yeah, it is. Graphically. Yeah. I think I might be alone. I don't like Tron. <gasps> I don't think it's watchable. Wow. <laughs> Just the colours. The whole black and white with the fluoro. Ooh. Oh, I don't know. It hurts my eyes. Does it? Um, oh, okay. But it's yeah, a consistent can, obviously, look. It's a yeah, designed it is, look. It is. And, and yeah. the lengths they went through to create that as well, amazing. Yeah. It's, it's very tedious work. I don't know. I also obviously found a lot of similarities between Tron and this, mm. mainly to do with the suits. Yes. The body suits that they had to wear when they were in the gyro spheres. I was surprised at how they pulled that off with the lights, though. Yeah. Because it's not lights. It's just... I guess the same sort of thing you would see on a, on a high-vis jacket right. or um, yeah. that sort of strip of fluoro. And all they did was turn on a black light <laughs> and it would glow. And then they just uh, shoved in a sound effect, like a yeah. sound effect when, when it turned on. But it wasn't actually a light. I thought, that's genius. Like, way to make it easy <laughs> yeah and, and cheap they worked hard i mean and it's a fine looking movie i mean apart from the cg sequences but in terms of filmmaking it doesn't look terrible i like the practical effects mm. they actually all worked at the petrol station where job is using the petrol pumps to wrap around and trap the petrol station guy jake that looks great the toothpaste that is getting squirted out with his mind mm. and you see the tube like deflate as it's squirting out just two syringes apparently one to deflate the tube and one to squirt out toothpaste that looks really great the yeah. levitating chair obviously wires but I, I couldn't see the wires so you know good job like the all the practical stuff all the telekinetic powers I kind of wanted more of that. Yeah. And less of the cyber stuff. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah, and the cinematography by Russell Carpenter. The film looks great. It's very 90s sci-fi. It's mm. very blue in that concrete lab. I'm not sure how anybody could work in there without getting very, very tired eyes. Yeah, <laughs> I think they said they were going for the 1984 aesthetic mm. to sort of corporations and concrete and... Uh, eh. I don't know. Very 90s, I guess. Yeah. But Russell Carpenter was then picked up by James Cameron and ended up working on True Lies and Titanic mm. and walked away with an Academy Award for Best Cinematography, among various other accolades. So the actual shooting of the film and the production design is good. Mm. And there's a lot of attention to detail and ingenuity. Mm. But the rest of it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Now it's time for Random Trivia! So Dan, what fascinating piece of trivia have you found on the planetary network today? 
Well, did you know that uh, apparently The Lawnmower Man was one of David Koresh's favourite movies? So those of you who don't know who David Koresh was, he was uh, the cult leader of the religious sect, the Branch Davidian, which was involved in the 1993 Waco Siege, also known as the Waco Massacre. Oh my. Yeah, so this siege uh, began with the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and firearms and they were searching the compound of this religious sect uh, for alleged um, stockpiles of illegal weapons and then a violent gunfight began lasting 51 days in, in which eventually the FBI got involved. The siege ended in a massive fire in which 76 Branch Davidians perished, including 25 children, two pregnant women and David Koresh. But um, yeah, the, apparently the FBI looked through a bunch of the tapes um, from Koresh and yeah, he, he mentioned that The Lawnmower Man was one of his favourite movies, uh, along, oh, with, oh. uh, <laughs> along with The Hamburger Hill and Full Metal Jacket, which are two war movies. So Yeah. Yeah. So was he a Vietnam veteran who was somewhat scarred by his experience? Maybe. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. Also, yeah. possibly with a god complex. <laughs> so. Just slightly, it seems. Yeah. Oh, my. That's not good. Mm. And that's our trivia. Yes. One thing I will say about the film that I do like is the characterization of Marnie Burke. Yes. The town cougar. I called her the town bike earlier, which is not fair. What I love about it is when Jeffrey Lewis's character, Terry, is talking about her. They're talking about the fact that she's young. I think she's widowed or her husband left her. She has a lot of money mm. and she is very outgoing mm. with guys in the town because she enjoys it. And it's very sex positive. They're not slut shaming her at all. They're just saying she's having a good time and mm. that's great. Don't criticise her for it. And I thought, wow, that's pretty good. Yeah, yeah. And then Terry, the head gardener, he's like, good for you, Job. Yeah. Go get her. Yes. <laughs> Although having said that, she is kind of raping a vulnerable adult, isn't she? Uh, I don't know. I, I feel like he's into it. He just doesn't know where to put the bits. <laughs> yeah. He's <laughs> into it, just doesn't know where to put it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Give me your tongue, Job. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's an awkward scene. But very well played by Jenny Wright, who I only know from Near Dark. Yeah. She kind of vanished after this. Yes. Which is a shame. I have seen Near Dark, but I don't remember her character in it. Apparently very good. But she's also in another... A really good movie called I Man Man. Oh. I don't know. But yeah, a few other movies like Young Guns 2 and uh, a 1989 movie called Twister, not the other more famous movie called Twister. Oh. And then, okay. yeah, she kind of just disappeared after that. Yeah. yeah, I agree. She was a very compelling character in this movie and, and sort of more fleshed out, it seemed. Yes. And I actually felt something when she became catatonic, when Job... Yes, yeah, cybersex to death. Yeah. Job goes weird demigorgon in, in the cyber world and <laughs> eats her slash rapes her. I, I don't really know what's going on. No. But yeah, I actually felt something in that scene. I, I was like, oh, shit. 
that's awful. <laughs> yeah, it is sad that she ends up catatonic at the end of the movie. Mm. So what did you think of the music? I did not like it. It felt like placeholder music. Like it didn't <laughs> feel like it fit in the movie. Like it was either on or off and it, not memorable at all. Like a lot of strings. There's some woodwind in there. So it sounded quite a lot like early MIDI yeah, as well. It is. Like just like really weird vibrato. I don't know what whether it was synth or whether it was real, but it, it sounded, yeah, like almost like stock plugins that you would get on a computer at the time. It is, yeah. It's early 90s digital MIDI keyboards with those woodwind patches. I've probably spoken about this before mm-hmm. on our podcast. I hate this era of synth scoring. It's that era when they're trying to sound like orchestral instruments and they're not pulling it off. Mm. And it just sounds like a cheap TV movie. It's just slathered on everywhere. Yeah. It never shuts up. Yeah. It, it sort of alternates between the woodwind chintzy stuff and then these sort of percussive loops that you know they're okay but it just sounds like an uninspired episode of the x-files to me yeah i i just don't understand how there's there's not a single memorable cue no. throughout the whole movie no. like i i watched the theatrical <laughs> cut and the director's cut and i cannot remember any of the music apart from it being suspended strings yes and that's it so the composer dan wyman mm. he hasn't done a lot of movies. He's done quite a few of Brett Leonard's movies. He did The Dead Pit, which was another Brett Leonard movie, but he has done synth work on the Halloween and The Fog, which mm. is quite notable. But I don't know. He's currently a uh, professor at San Jose State University in California. So you can go to a website called Rate My Professor. He does not have a good rating. Oh, no. <laughs> 2.6 out of 5. A lot of the students complaining about his classes being very confusing and not covering the syllabus that is actually needed to pass exams. <laughs> so, <laughs> wow. I don't know. This is a whole new area of criticism for our podcast. Yeah. <laughs> I'm loving it, though. It's great. I'm sure he's a very uh, accomplished. Uh, professor, uh, apparently he did a, a doctorate in South African music. I don't know. Uh, he apparently he does teach film scoring though, which I do find a bit. Yeah. Uh, these films that he's got in his belt for film scoring, I don't know. Yeah. So his relationship with John Carpenter was essentially the sort of role that Alan Howarth played at the peak Carpenter era. Right. Carpenter is a great musician in and of his own right, but he's not really very technical. So he would always have somebody in those early days who had a studio with synths in and would right. be able to plug all the switches in and twist all the knobs for him. And right. Yeah. yeah. So you end up with him and somebody. And it was Dan Wyman for Halloween and The Fog and also Assault on Precinct 13, I think. Okay. And then Alan Howarth for a very, very long time until recently when he's playing with his son. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I'm not sure he particularly contributed much to those <laughs> movies. And Carpenter moved on, so maybe that tells us something. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure. <laughs> I don't know. I, I feel like if the score was something, I don't know, retro, like more 80s, but I guess they wouldn't do that in 92. No. It would have made it better. It would have made mm. the movie more enjoyable because sonically it felt quite stagnant. 
Yeah. Like, it didn't feel like it was going anywhere. Yeah. It's terminally bland. Very cliche and cheesy. Yeah. Like a soap opera. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Mm. Oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> Any uh, students of uh, San Jose State University, let us know if he is a good uh, professor. <laughs> yes. That's what our podcast is about now. <laughs> Coming to you live from the Movie Oubliette Theatre, it's the prestigious Movie Awards. Hey, hey, it's the Movie Awards. It's where we present our favourite cringeworthy CGI virtual reality parts of the film in a number of brain-expanding categories. Best quote. My favourite quote comes from Pierce Brosnan, who says, quote, the lowest point in my career amend that the lowest point in my life. And I thought, <laughs> yep. <laughs> He's yeah. talking about the death of a chimpanzee, but I thought it was very apt. <laughs> mm. I mean, it's, it's interesting because this is between Remington Steele mm. and James Bond. Uh, so, yes, very, uh, very low trough between those two (laughs) (laughs) highly acclaimed things. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So my favourite quote, Job actually has a lot of good quotes. I would actually say there are some really profound quotes in this movie um, Mm. said by Job and by Larry, but I'll go with one by Job. He says, I'm going to help all of you cleanse this diseased planet this technology has peeled back a layer to reveal another universe virtual reality will grow just as a telegraph grew to the telephone as a radio to the tv it will be everywhere yes turned out not to be true though (laughs) well yeah yeah i think i think the main problem with virtual reality is you're still in this physical reality so yes. if you walk somewhere in the virtual reality, you're going to walk into a wall. So yeah. they need to figure that out first. <laughs> before. It makes for great TikTok videos, though. <laughs> it does. It does. Best hair or costume? Will it have to be Job's makeover? I mean, it's so sudden. He's a cowboy. He's got the um, the cowboy boots, the denim jeans, and, and the sort of the white cowboy shirt. Um, but I did laugh quite heartily at his appearance in that scene, which is just his butt in the in the mirror view <laughs> <laughs> of uh, of yes. the, the, the Marnie character. Um, yeah, yeah, that's good. <laughs> Marnie is checking out Jeff Fahey's butt. Yeah, he goes full on with his dream of looking like that magazine advertisement, doesn't mm. he? Yeah, he does. My favourite is Larry Angelo's 90s look, uh, which consists of baggy beige shorts, voluminous green polo shirt, I think it is, Mm -hmm. thick grey socks, and uh, some sort of boot, maybe a Doc Martin boot. He has a single earring and greasy hair. The really entertaining thing about this is, well, there's two things. One, gosh, didn't we use a lot of material in the 90s? Like five (laughs) people could get in those clothes. Mm -hmm. But second of all, they're trying desperately, desperately to make Pierce Brosnan look 
ugly and yeah. fails miserably. He is astonishingly handsome in every <laughs> single shot. And the director talked about that on the commentary that they tried everything. They underlit him with fluorescence. Mm. They put a wide angle lens on him and the gyroscope. And mm. let's face it, any of us just look hideous in those circumstances. Nope, still looks bloody gorgeous. Mm. And it drove them crazy. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Most 90s moment. I think the most 90s moment in this movie is where Austin O'Brien, as Peter, utters the deathless phrase, Whoa, awesome, dudical. <laughs> I must have missed that. Wow. Dudical? <laughs> dudical. I had to look it up. <laughs> I don't think I've even so, heard that, that word before. Wow. Yeah. It's like radical but and dude mixed together. Apparently it's from uh, 80s surf culture and was first recorded in 1986. Oh. Dudical. There wow. you go. <laughs> Does anybody out there still say dudical? Let us know. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Wow. Uh, 90s for me, you've got a CD boombox in the car. Ah, Not, yes. Yep. Just CDs in the 90s, uh, cutting-edge technology. Um, but I also have to say, yeah. you know, virtual reality was a very big thing in the 90s as well. Yeah. Just being a very common topic in movies. Um, hackers, didn't hackers have virtual reality in that? Yeah, it had some elements of it, yeah. yeah. And I think it all came from this movie, because I don't think people had even heard of it before. I mean, certainly none of the actors had any idea what Brett Leonard was talking about. Mm, so. mm. Favourite scene! I'm going to have to go with the only um, relation to the book. So the lawnmower killing scene in the living room. Because oh, it, it looked really great. It was all practical effects and so none of that dodgy CGI. Um, it was apparently on a raised set. So they could like pull all of these like rugs and stuff through slots so it, it looked like the, the lawnmower was actually eating these rugs but they weren't yeah I, I thought it was a really almost like like black comedy horror though yes like a horror comedy scene like it, it did feel separate from the movie um, but really well pulled off. Yeah, I did laugh at the final shot where the uh, the lawnmower launches at him from the raised platform in yeah. his house as he's running out of his house. I did laugh. Yeah, but I think you were meant to. It's supposed yeah. to be funny, isn't it? It did feel like a comedy horror scene, like like from Black mm. Sheep or or a Sam Raimi film or something. Yeah, it did. It did make me giggle. Mm. Um, oddly enough, my favourite was the comedy cops that come afterwards. They were great. Um, they were great. They are so funny. <laughs> and I think most of the dialogue is verbatim from King. So, yeah, this world is chock full of nuts, Cooley, <laughs> says one of them. Yeah. Talking about the murders. Um, but then they forget everything after Job looks at them and then they're just sort of brushing it all off. So... Uh, yeah, the performance. Just an accident. I love the performance because they're so sort of um, small town cops, like really matter of fact. And then there's this like moment where it's obvious that Job's pushed ideas into the head. And then uh, the, one of the cops just says, well, accidents happen. And the other one <laughs> just agrees like two bizarre accidents in one night. And they're just nodding. <laughs> <laughs> Most cliche sci-fi moment. My cliche is killer monkeys, which oh. <laughs> 
seemed to be quite the thing in the 90s for some reason. So you had killer monkeys in Congo, you had them in Jumanji. I mean, they weren't killer, but I mean, they weren't friendly, that's for sure. Yeah. Link, monkey shines in the 80s. There were all these primates that were taught to be assistants to people, but of course it all goes horribly wrong because their intelligence Mm. gets the better of them. And of course, most famously, The Wizard of Oz in 1939. But I think of most recently in science fiction in Ad Astra, the Brad Pitt film, which most of the time just looks like a pontificating perfume commercial, but for some reason just diversifies into killer floating space monkeys. Oh, really? For 10 minutes. <laughs> yeah, it's like, why is this scene here? You could lift it straight out of the movie and it would make no difference. It's insane. Yeah. How about you? <laughs> uh, cliche. Uh, I mean, there's always the big corporations weaponizing anything to do with a scientific <laughs> breakthrough. It could be anything, really. <laughs> um, but I also have to mention um, body suits that glow. They have to have oh, some yeah. sort of lights on them because it wouldn't be sci-fi without that. No. Best special, special effect. effect. In terms of CGI, I didn't mind... The molecular effect, turning uh, agents into little balls. Oh, right, yeah. It looked goofy. Yeah. (laughs) But it kind of worked. But everything surrounding that effect, so the giant Zardoz head and, and, and everything glitching to like VHS quality visuals, not great, but that... By itself, I thought it was it wasn't too bad. Oh, okay, well, that's interesting. Yeah. No, I went for one of the practical effects, which is the guy who is uh, telepathically forced into shooting himself in the head with a rifle. That was I a surprising was... <laughs> amount of gore. <laughs> it was, yeah, because the rest of the movie is pretty toothless for yeah. a horror movie. I mean, most of the his revenge killings, like burning the priest to death, doesn't look realistic. Doesn't look, Mowing yeah. the bully's brain doesn't oh, make any sense. Horrifying. <laughs> the words that came out of my mouth were just, oh no. <laughs> Listeners that haven't seen the scene, it, it, it goes full CGI into Jake's brain and it's got this big, massive Job face <laughs> with a lawnmower for a mouth mowing his brain. I mean, come on. (laughs) Who thought that was a good idea? Favourite sound effect. I do want to point out there's one scene where I think Job injects himself with the drug, the psychoactive drug or whatever it is. And it makes that, you know, that that sci-fi sound when you inject it in. But one of them, I don't know why, makes makes a lovely like pop sound. When he pulls it out, <laughs> why? Why does it do that? It, it sounds like uh, like a <laughs> sound. <laughs> I don't. Why? Yeah, it doesn't form a vacuum seal on the skin, does it? When you're being injected, I don't think so. But. No. How about for you, sound? My favourite was from your favourite scene, your favourite effects scene anyway, when people turn into marbles. I did actually like the sound of marbles clunking around. Ah, (laughs) People are sort of starting to... I think the guy looks at his hand and it just starts to fall apart and you have this electronically treated marbles in a bag Mm. sort of noise. (laughs) I thought it was great. Yeah. (laughs) Most funniest moment. I think we've already mentioned all the funny scenes for me. The cop scene, hilarious. Job's makeover (laughs) as his butt is is a focal point. (laughs) Hilarious as well. Yeah. 
a lot of unintentionally funny scenes in this movie. Maybe the cop scene was was intentional. It is very funny. My favourite was right at the beginning. I just don't think there's anything funnier or more ridiculous than a chimp in a gyroscope in a Tron outfit. I just, <laughs> I just took one look at it and thought, oh my God, what are we in for? And then I found out that there is something funnier than that because in the very next scene, you suddenly had these over the top of the chimp shots as it made its way out of the complex, tried to escape. So you've just got this chimp helmet bumping up and down. Uh-huh at the bottom of the frame uh, I was just I was sweating myself and then all of these horrible composite shots where they obviously tried to do all the chimp shots in front of a blue screen because it was so hard to get it to do things mm. so it's always composited so you get these sudden flashes of it doing something intercut with these phony chimp hands grabbing guns and things and right, um, right, honestly right. the opening scene I just thought oh my goodness what the hell is this <laughs> And that's our Mooblies. Yeah. This is Kelly Maroney, and you are listening to Movie Oubliette. Okay, okay, it's final verdict time. Should the Lawnmower Man be released from the Oubliette, projected into the neural net to be phoned into everyone's household and be loved by all? Or should it be trapped in 1992 virtual reality and plummet back into the void of the Oubliette, never to be spoken of again? Conrad! Was this your favourite 1992 movie about virtual reality or what? (laughs) (laughs) Well, it could possibly have that title because it's the only one. But um, yeah, I think probably people will have picked up during the course of this that I was not terribly impressed with this movie. I think there are a lot of uh, interesting ideas going on. Um, I just don't think that they're terribly well executed I think the CGI is is terrible, and not just in the sense that it's dated, but in the sense that it's just badly designed and hmm. ugly. I don't think it's a very interesting science fiction movie, even though it's touching on sort of a, a, a new concept that people weren't familiar with. I mean, it clearly excited people at the time, but, hmm. you know, 30 years later, we're still not strapping ourselves in gyroscopes and vanishing into VR worlds on a regular basis. And I have a lot of problems with the characters. Specifically, I don't like any of them. Mm. I think, um, yeah, Job's characterization is not great. The only good characterization in it is Marnie. I just love that there's this cougar in this town and everybody's really sex positive about it and just letting her enjoy her life. I think that's the only thing I like about it. But the music's bad. The effects are bad. The story doesn't make any sense, especially in the theatrical cut. And um, Mm -hmm. it's just laughably cheap in a lot of places. So I hated it when I went to see it in the cinema in 1992 and 30 years on, I still don't like it. So, mm. No, I'd mm. chuck it back in there. How about you? Your your nostalgia item. Yeah. Did it live up to your memories? Yeah, well, uh, my memories of this movie, uh, I guess, non-existent. All I remember was the lawn mowing and the CGI. And I guess I was more forgiving as a child of the CGI uh, <laughs> <laughs> because it is uh, horrendous. The CGI is so, so <laughs> ugly. And a lot of... Uh, my main two problems with this movie are obviously the CGI dates 
badly, but also the Job character. I I could not get on on side with. I just did not believe this was a character having a a character art. Mm. Maybe it was to do with Jeff Fahey just not being able to portray this character very well, or maybe it was just the character itself just being too Hollywood cliche of an autistic person but that really didn't work i think the director's cut does improve on Mm. the theatrical cut but it's not a lot of an improvement um (laughs) not to the degree that it's worth two hours and 20 minutes of your time that's for sure (laughs) no i do have to say i have to admit i think this movie is quite influential i think it doesn't do anything right but I think other movies after looked at this this film and, and thought, hmm, I could do that better. Uh, because there are a lot of similarities between this movie and, and The Matrix um, and, and other mm. sort of 90s movies, like even Hackers um, has similarities. Um, I know you didn't like Hackers. Um, but <laughs> and, and Hollow Man and sort of sci-fi technological films with intelligence expansion. So Lucy and Limitless have similar premises, Mm. expanding brain function with drugs in those two movies. Uh, Lucy in particular, I mean, spoilers here, but she becomes so intelligent that she does develop powers and does upload herself into the internet. Um, Very similar (laughs) to this movie. So I I do think it's... They had the bandwidth then to do it, maybe. (laughs) Yeah. Lucy's not a perfect movie, though, so a lot of people do hate it. So I'm not saying that it's it's improved on this movie, but I do think it is influential. But as a movie, just all of that aside, it's not very enjoyable. This movie is not enjoyable. Like, you don't... You're not rooting for anyone. And, yeah, the CGI just brings it to another level of, of bad. So I'm sorry, childhood Dan, but uh, I'm going to have to throw this back into the oubliette. <laughs> okay, come here, you. Back you go. This technology will free the mind. <sighs> yes. <sighs> That's a relief. Listeners out there, tell us what you thought of Lawn Mower Man. Yes. Uh, and you can tell us on all of our social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as movieoubliette. And you can email us at movie.oubliette at gmail.com. Haven't had many emails recently, so do drop us a line. Yes, and we're, we're on Reddit as well, movieoubliette pod. Uh, we have had zero <laughs> comments on Reddit, but that's okay. At least we're there. We are. <laughs> And if you want to support the show, head on over to Patreon, where for as little as a dollar you get access to extended portions of the show and you can nominate and vote on films for us to cover in future episodes. And for $5 you get access to our special patron-only minisodes where we talk about things that you want us to talk about. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, our last episode we talked about our favourite films. Conrad's favourite film and my favourite film. Yes. You might be surprised. Neither of them genres we normally talk about, too. So, uh, interesting. Mine was sci-fi. Sci-fi. Kind that's of, true. Yeah. yeah, that's true. 
check that out. Yes, yes. <laughs> and if you haven't already, give us a rating and review on uh, Apple Podcasts or whatever other platform you are using, including Spotify. I've noticed that there is now a rating system on Spotify. So five stars, please. Mm. <laughs> yes. <laughs> And if you want to buy merchandise with our logo splattered all over it, head on over to Redbubble, where you can get a wide variety of objects. Yes. Really strange things like shower curtains, but also useful things like tablet covers. Like and shower curtains. Posters and <laughs> stickers. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yes. Enjoy. <laughs> so, Conrad, what are we going to be doing next episode? Well, for our next episode, we are yet again looking at a movie that received a belated director's cut that supposedly improves the movie, although the original film was not as much of a success as this one. Hmm. It's the 1990 American dark fantasy horror film, Nightbreed. Oh, bit of Clive Barker. Yeah, we haven't done that since Rawhead Rex, have we, Clive Barker? No, that's true. Yeah. So he had a massive success with Hellraiser and Hellbound was a huge success as well, though he didn't direct that one. Mm. And then his attempt to do sort of a fantasy film full of lore and a whole universe around it bombed really quite badly. Wow. So let's rediscover that yes. with a special guest. Oh, Great. Looking forward to that. Indeed. So, thanks for listening. It's been great having you along for this ride. Yes, until next time. Bye for now. Goodbye. We review the films others tend to forget. Come with us and don't the movie you yet. No, you're trying to get inside my head, Job. I can feel you pushing.